HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, back in front of the microphone again. And today we're going to talk chicken, uh, which seems fitting given that it's poultry season. Uh, We'll all be roasting up our hopefully heritage birds people. Um, Our guest today is Oliver Gottfried. Oliver is the Senior Advocacy and Collaborations Advisor at Oxfam America. Uh, He is with their U.S. regional office. He has led Oxfam's poultry work over the last two years and served as the organizer of the coalition of over a dozen groups working together on poultry worker issues. Prior to coming to Oxfam America, Oliver spent 14 years leading campaigns and advocacy work for political campaigns and labor unions across the United States. Welcome to the program, Oliver. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Katie. Glad to be on. Um. Um, I want to point out one thing right now, um, and that's before we get into the show, and that is is that uh, you're not going to hear this interview anywhere else. Oliver, how many people, how many media outlets have called you to talk about your recently published uh, major uh, report on the poultry industry, uh, otherwise known as Lives on the Line? How many people have called to interview about that? Not many. Um, we obviously are working to raise awareness about these issues, but we have uh, we've, uh, part of the reason we published this report was to help uh, you know bring it to listeners like yours and make sure that more people are aware of what's going on in, uh, for workers in the poultry industry. So the national public radio, uh, none of the major media outlets on television, nobody's calling you up and saying, wow, you have an amazing multimedia report on your website about the poultry industry, and they're not calling you up and saying, gee, we want to have somebody come in and talk about that? 
That's exactly right. You know, we've uh, certainly some of the uh, more food-focused outlets have taken an interest, uh, but uh, you know, we are really pushing hard to make sure that this breaks through to uh, you know some folks in the mainstream media as well. But uh, are working hard to make that happen, and very appreciative that we're going to get to tell this story to your listeners as well. Oh well, I'm 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 just saying this. This is totally self-serving, quite honestly, Oliver. I'll just tell you right now because we're in our fundraising yeah. drive right now, and um, I want listeners uh, to re- recognize that they're not going to hear an interview with you on just any old radio station or any old TV broadcast. They're only going to hear it here on Heritage Radio Network. I hope it won't be only here, but right now we're basically it, right? So let's That's exactly right. Let's get into the into the nitty-gritty here. So you guys published a really, I mean, it was a knockout that report. It was like you know, I can't even believe I was reading something um, that is a report of condi- working conditions in 21st century America. It read like something that you would have seen in, you know, Dickensian times or, you know, at the very least, uh, early 20th century, late 19th century, uh, before there were unions and rules about labor uh, and what you can and cannot do to your workers. So so tell us a little bit about Lives on the Line. What 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 do you guys highlight there? Yeah, sure. So, uh, thank you, first of all, for the kind words about our uh, about our report. So, it, we exactly the reason that you laid out is exactly why we wanted to do this report. Uh, you know, people uh, were aware that some terrible working conditions might have existed in the poultry and meatpacking industries. Maybe people read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, yeah. um, but haven't given it much thought recently. And yet, at the same time, uh, increase uh, unbelievable increases in consumption by, of chicken by the American public um, is just been growing and growing and. Growing. Right. Um, the average American now eats 89 pounds of chicken each year, and that number is has been growing steadily and will uh, continue and is projected to continue increasing. Um, and profits for these poultry companies have just been growing and growing and growing. These are multi-billion-dollar, uh, you know, international corporations. Sure. And yet. Uh, while all of that is happening, more people eating chicken in more different ways and more different locations and, and uh, increasing the profits of these poultry companies, what you have is a quarter of a million workers who work in these processing plants. These are the people who take the live chickens and then turn them into the chicken nuggets and, and pre-fried, pre-seasoned, pre-cooked chicken uh, breast patties that you buy in the grocery store or eat at uh, your favorite restaurant or eat at your school cafeteria. And really, uh, you know, we feel like uh, the, you know, the average consumer just isn't aware that these sorts of conditions are happening. And so right. what we aim to do with our report and its accompanying website is help consumers understand that, you know, they are part of this system that exists and they have the power to help change it and improve conditions for these workers. Absolutely. So um, let's talk a little bit about the, the four big companies that you profiled and um, describe for us really, I want, if you can, dollars and cents, their, their financial success, the exponential growth and the kind of compensation that management is getting versus the kind of compensation that workers are getting. Yeah, sure. So uh, we targeted specifically the four biggest poultry companies uh, in the United States. And this is an industry, as I said, has been growing um, per capita compensation and the size of the industry has really tripled within the last sort of 50 or 60 years. Yeah. Uh, and um, the four biggest companies are Tyson Foods, uh, Pilgrim's Pride, 
uh, Purdue and Sanderson Farms. And what we've seen is tremendous consolidation within this industry. Um, Those four companies alone control almost 60% of the market in this country, and the top 10 companies overall control over 80% of the market. So that means that uh, consumers don't really have much of a choice. They may not know this, but they don't have much of a choice. Um, It means most of the major grocery stores and restaurants and cafeterias and food service establishments that you eat at buy likely from one of these four companies. Right. Uh, and you have to search very hard to find uh, to find a, uh, you know, uh, products that are made by these companies. And they also own dozens and dozens of sub-brands. Um, right. And some of them you know, may be very well known to you. If you buy, for example, Harvest Land Organic Chicken, that's actually owned by Purdue. Right. Uh, and if you like Neiman Ranch, uh, was, uh, which is a company that I know a lot of people uh, buy their beef and pork products from, that was actually just purchased by Purdue. Yes, indeed And if you eat Weaver Chicken Nuggets or Idell's Chicken Sausages or Sara Lee uh, Deli Meats, those are owned by Tyson. Um, and mm-hmm. so the way that these companies, part of the way that these companies have grown is to buy up smaller companies. And so mm-hmm. you may think you have a choice and you may think you may be, may be buying from a smaller producer, but in likelihood, you're actually buying from one of these four companies. Um, and to give you an example, uh, you talked about dollars and cents. Um, Tyson last year um, brought in almost $40 billion in revenue. $40 uh, billion with, with a B, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in 2014, $37.8 billion in revenue, um, and profits, pure profit alone, was almost $900 million, $856 million. Wow. Uh, and what we've seen is incredible growth. That has uh, increased significantly over the last uh, few years. Poultry companies, like many other companies, took a hit during the recession but have rebounded quite well um, and have seen their profits increase steadily uh, since the, uh, in the last few years. And that has really translated to um, the executives of these companies as well. I'll give you an example. Yes. Uh, the president and CEO of Pilgrims um, in just the last four years, from 2011 to 2014, saw his compensation rise almost 300%, uh, 290%. He now makes not over $9 million. A $9 million so the, a year to run a chicken company. Yep. Wow. Exactly. Yep. And uh, by contrast, his workers, those workers on the line, um, they're making about $11 an hour mm-hmm. on average, which actually places them uh, you know, at or around the poverty line, depending on how many uh, uh, yeah. people they support in their family. Um, and to give you a, an, an idea of how much, uh, that, uh, how much of a difference there is between these executives and their workers, uh, so Sanderson Farms, which is the fourth biggest uh, poultry company in the U.S., um, again, their, uh, their CEO and chairman has received a 200% increase in his compensation just in the last uh, four years. And uh, he makes as much in one day, just a one eight-hour workday, as uh, one of his processing line workers makes in an entire year. Yeah, I, I loved that. That was actually in your report, and I just loved mm-hmm. that particular, because that, boy, does that throw it into stark relief, you know, that it, yep. these people are working their tails off in a very, uh, you know, very dangerous and unpleasant place. Um, let me ask you, what, what, why did you guys decide to um, to publish or, you know, to create, compile, and publish this report? Why, why now? Why not? For instance, a couple of years ago, uh, Chris Leonard published that great book, The Meat Racket, which was about um, the the poultry industry. And Ted Genoways did The Chain, which was about largely about labor conditions in a Hormel packing plant. Um, You know, was it because these books are starting to come out or or this was just an independent, you know, internal uh, decision to make? Or how, how did you come to do this? 
Yeah, so the reason was we feel like what we've seen, uh, and Oxfam works a lot on food issues both in the U.S. and around the world, is yeah. we started to see that there's a, this growing awareness among consumers about where our food comes from. Mm-hmm. And not only an awareness, but an interest in, and, and people are really caring more about where their food comes from. Yes. And we've seen it very specifically in the poultry industry. Consumers have started to pay attention to the treatment of the chickens and the safety of their food. Um, there's been a number of uh, food safety outbreaks among uh uh, among the poultry industry oh, yeah. just in the last few years, and we've seen major stories in Consumer Reports and Frontline. Mm-hmm. And, right. and um, so, there's, so there's been a lot more attention paid to the industry at the time that uh, consumption and, uh, and profits in the industry have been increasing. But what we feel like was left out of that conversation was these workers on the processing line. Yeah. And uh, we felt like if consumers were more aware of what these workers were going through and spoke out in the same way that they've done on food safety issues in poultry and on animals, uh, welfare issues in poultry, that we would be able to get these companies to change their practices and, and uh, push them to treat their workers better. And so that's why we did this. We wanted to make uh, make sure that people, when they're making their buying decisions and thinking about which companies they want to support with their uh, with their grocery dollars and their food dollars, that they think about these issues as part of that calculus. Absolutely. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, is poultry processing significantly different from other meatpacking jobs in terms of the rate of injury or other health issues? Because um, it's all it's all a pretty dangerous yeah, field to be in. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, these are terrible jobs, um, and uh, the issues are just uh, different. Um, they're uh, they're very. All of these are very very dangerous. Uh, industries because of um, the speed at which these workers work, right. the sharp tools that they must uh, that they must use to, to slice up these. So there's a few uh, sort of crucial differences in the in the poultry industry. Mm-hmm. The animals are obviously much smaller, um, which means that there there's less uh, work that's automated and more work that must be done by hand. Oh. Uh, and uh, and um, really, one of the other sort of very crucial differences uh, is, this, and, and I'll say, the size of the animals in the poultry and uh, excuse me, in beef and pork processing, actually does lead to increased, uh, inc- a higher rate of injuries for workers in those industries. You're dealing with much, much, much heavier animals. Sure. Uh, but a crucial difference between them is uh, rates of unionization in beef and pork are significantly higher than they are in poultry. Uh-huh. Uh, the, uh, due to um, you know strong work by unions, you've got uh, a very large majority of workers in beef and, and pork industries uh, who are under co- collective bargaining agreements and have a very crucial ally and a crucial way to uh, to speak out and, and protest dangerous conditions. Um, but in the poultry industry, that is, has yet to really happen, and that's due to um, a history of anti-union behavior in the poultry industry mm-hmm. um, and the, uh, and the, uh, where these uh, poultry plants are located, which are largely in uh, anti-union right-to-work states in the, in the southeast. And so what you have mm-hmm. is only about a third of all poultry workers are unionized, which leaves two-thirds of the workforce without that crucial ally and without that crucial voice. Right, and without that, those crucial protections. Um, let's talk exactly. about the key points that emerged from your investigations. I'm going to l- list them now, and then we'll, we'll go through them together. Uh, line speed and injuries, uh, compensation, wage theft, and hour reporting. That seemed to be a big issue. The point system, which is a way of like basically giving demerits. Uh, bathroom breaks, which don't happen. And an overall pervasive culture of fear. Um, so let's start mm-hmm. with the line speed and the injuries. So, uh, you know, for uh, your listeners that may not be familiar, the, uh, the way that poultry processing works is um, chickens are loaded onto what's basically a conveyor belt um, uh-huh. and uh, run through a production process where they are turned from a 
full chicken into all the different uh, parts of the chicken that you may find at the grocery store or at a restaurant. And workers stand on that line uh, for, you know, usually around eight hours per day while these chickens come by them uh, at a specific rate. And each worker has a specific job. They are the ones who uh, cut off the wings or they pull off the breasts or they pull off the skin or they uh, cut off the, uh, the legs uh, or drumsticks. And they basically have that one job and do it all day long. Right. Um, they uh, work, as I said, about eight hours a day. Um, they are given, on average, probably about one 30-minute break. Maybe they get one other five- or ten-minute break at some other point during that. But that basically means that they stand there for up to four hours at a time uh, as these birds go by and perform the exact same motion over and over again. And uh, the average that these workers have to process is between... 30, what we've heard from workers is between about 35 and 45 birds each minute, which really means that they have to process one of these chickens every two seconds. Yeah. Um, and each job that they do isn't just one slice. Usually there are several different slices involved in that. Um, and so when you're talking about 35 or 45 chickens per minute, that is about 14,000 chickens a day. And because each of those chickens requires multiple movements, the, uh, the, uh, the research that's been done to show that these workers make anywhere from about 20,000 to sometimes upwards of 100,000 of the exact same motion over and over and over again every day with very few rest breaks. And what that means is you get um, these crippling what are called musculoskeletal disorders, which is pain or swelling or loss of feeling yeah. or loss of grip in their hands. Nerve and in their damage. Body. Yeah. From, yeah, exactly. From doing the exact same job over and over again. Um, that can lead to painful and sometimes lifelong crippling and debilitating injuries where they use the, uh, lose the use of their hands or their ability yeah. to form a fist or to hold things um, and just really debilitating pain. So that's the end of that job, by the way, as well. Yeah. Okay. And exactly. um, and then uh, and then you 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 pointed out, of course, already that the compensation is only about eleven dollars an hour. That's an average. Some people make less, I'm sure, mm-hmm. when they come in, and depending on the level of difficulty or the sophistication of the job they have to perform, um, you know, that their wage is is tied to that. Um, you you said something about wage theft, and then and also the fact that their hours are very difficult to um to identify for the workers like they don't really know how many hours they're working and so forget about overtime forget about uh being compensated for any extra minutes and then also there were several huge lawsuits and this is endemic across the the meatpacking industry for donning what they call donning and doffing which is putting on and taking off your your gear before the work which they were not being compensated for and for which that you know obviously is kind of lengthy so let's so, tell us a little bit about the hour reporting thing that really fascinated me yeah, so we've heard a lot of reports in the uh, in the work that we did in the research for this uh, for this report and and from uh, our other ally organizations that work on this is that often workers are uh, not given pay stubs, so they don't they aren't able to track their own hours um, versus what they're the hours that they're getting paid for. Uh, and also, we've heard of uh, companies resorting to paying workers in debit cards. Yes. Um, and they, uh, the companies claim that this is so that workers don't have to turn to check cashing uh, uh, facilities that then charge them exorbitant fees. But what it also means is that workers, especially those who have lower uh, computer proficiency, are unable to, uh, it requires them to get online to be able to check the balance that they have on these cards and check mm-hmm. it against their pay stubs and making sure that they're getting uh, paid for the hours that they worked. So they're unable to get online or, or don't know how. Uh, and so, uh, and sometimes they have to pay fees in order to access the money that are on these debit cards, which chips away a little by little, along with the donning and doffing uh, lawsuits that you've uh, pointed out, the donning and doffing issue, um, that just chips away at the very little money that these workers already make and means that they're bringing home less than they, than they should be. 
Right. Um, to just, to, I want to go back for a second to the line speed and injuries thing. So you're talking about these muscular, um, muscular skeletal disorders. Um, I, I wanted to make sure that people understand that, that the workers are often afraid to report their injuries, uh, or if they are reporting their injuries, um, they're not adequately attended to. So give us a little thumbprint of the, the insurance issues, the medical issues. Like tell us a little bit about how that's managed or not managed by these large companies that are reporting these breathtaking profits. Sure. Uh, so what ends up happening is uh, a worker can get injured, uh, and uh, we've heard of a number of different things that could be happening at that uh, at that point. Um, we've heard of workers who are uh, harassed or discriminated against or threatened with deportation or firing or even actually firing for reporting an injury. So in that one situation, if a worker sees that happen to one of their uh, colleagues, uh, one of their coworkers in the plant, that, first of all, prevents them from or, or really gives them serious thought about uh, reporting an injury of their own. Um, and makes them seriously uh, question whether they would report that injury on their own. Uh, if they do have the courage to report an injury, um, they're usually sent to a company-staffed, company-provided uh, nursing station or, or doctor station. And we've seen a number of different things happen in that situation. One is there are examples of uh, companies staffing those with seriously underqualified medical pro- uh, professionals so that workers are uh, not receiving the care that they deserve. There's one example of, uh, of uh, a company employing some, simply some Someone who's gone through CPR and EMT training, oh uh, or you have, uh, or you have licensed practicing nurses who are uh, performing things that are really outside what, what we call their scope of practice, and and um, and are dealing with issues that they aren't adequately trained for. Uh, but also, obviously, because these companies are, want to avoid uh, having to pay workers' compensation or uh, or uh, any lawsuits that might arise, they will. Um, not properly treat the injury that comes in. We've heard dozens and dozens, even hundreds of workers saying that when they come in with these terrible pains in their hands and their upper body, um, they are just given an aspirin or a uh, Bengay or a cold compress uh, or and said, you know, this, this happens all the time. Um, you're just your body is adjusting to this work. You know, uh, just go back to the line. And so they do that. They may take the Advil or the aspirin, and then obviously the pain goes away temporarily, but comes back because of either debilitating, uh, you know, and, and long-term problems. And they'll come back to the nursing station, and then again, just you know, be given the same thing. Um, in one particularly egregious example that um, that the government found last year, there's a poultry company in Alabama where a worker was uh, went to the nursing station 94 times before they were finally allowed to go see a doctor and receive the treatment that they. Uh, that they deserve. Uh, and the reason that this happens is um, companies, uh, the rules that exist now for companies to report injuries to the federal government that they count in their overall statistics about how dangerous uh, or not dangerous some industries are, are what rises above what is called the first aid level, which is exactly what I just described, uh, right. you know, cold compress or cream or, or pills. And so companies will deliberately um, treat people with only first aid in order to keep it below that level and, rec- and uh, avoid having to report it on their right. uh, injury laws. Because then if it goes um, into a report like that, then doesn't OSHA get involved? They can, yeah. Um, you know, obviously companies with uh, significantly higher rates of reported injuries that they report to OSHA uh, will receive more attention from mm-hmm. uh, from federal inspectors who come in. Um, and so companies will deliberately try to keep those numbers lower. Right. Right. Um, I want to just uh, quickly touch on the point system, uh, the fact of, you know, the, the, the fact that they're not allowed to leave to go take a piss and that people are wearing pampers 
on the line or yep. that pregnant women are, you know, defecating in their drawers because they're not allowed to take a, a break. I mean, it's, I, you know, I was just like, honestly, this just blew my mind. So let's talk a little bit about the demerits and the bathroom breaks and the sort of, you know, culture of fear. And then uh, and then we'll move on to sort of a, a, a more macro picture. Sure. Uh, so, you know, they're, the production, these companies uh, try to meet a, a very high demand that the general public gives them. Um, and so what that means is that the only thing that matters is taking all of the chickens that are delivered to a plant on a given day and processing them and making sure they all go out at the end of the day. And that's why these uh, line speeds run as fast as they do. It's because these, uh, these companies push and push and push to make sure that they're meeting their production quotas that they have each day. And what it means is that workers are really unable uh, to speak out when any sort of problem happens that would require stopping the line. Right. Um, and if, if a worker misses a chicken that goes in front of them, uh, you know, they're, uh, they, someone still has to process that chicken later on. And so the workers are forced to process every chicken that goes in front of them to be able to, uh, to meet that production quota. And so there's a few ways that um, that manifests itself in really terrible ways for these workers. One is that when workers say, I need to stop, you know, and use the bathroom, or I would just, or even something as simple as I would like to stand up and stretch and, you know, um, and, uh, and just take a break for 30 or seconds. Or blow my nose. Do that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, and so they sometimes have to go three or four hours without being able to stop whatsoever. And we have heard from workers who've compensated for that in a number of different ways. They will stop drinking water um, so they don't have to use the bathroom. And we talked to a worker who developed severe dehydration because of that. Um, they will urinate on themselves um, because they uh, are literally uh, uh, not allowed to leave the line and to, uh, to go to the bathroom without uh, potentially being fired or, or being penalized. Um, or um, they'll wear diapers. And we haven't heard that, you know, uh, that uh, obviously extreme solution quite as much, but we have spoken to workers who, uh, you know, have talked about wearing diapers to work to compensate for the fact that they can't leave. Um, and, the, and the point system that you refer to, the demerit system, basically companies have um, these systems where any sort of transgression that they deem uh, outside, outside of the rules uh, results in workers getting points. Um, and that could be, you know, obviously applies to seriously dangerous behavior um, or unsafe behavior that threatens either themselves or their coworkers. But we've heard um, in a different scenario of companies using these as a way basically to keep their workers silent. You report an injury or you report uh, something happening, you get a point. If you leave the line uh, without, um, without uh, you know, waiting to be excused, you get a point. Um, you slip and fall because these conditions are extremely slippery um, because of all the chemicals and, um, and other uh, parts of the process. You slip and fall, you get a point. And what happens is the point system is sometimes kept by these companies very mysterious where workers don't know how many points they have. They don't know what it takes to to earn them a point. They don't know what it takes to get points removed from their record, and they don't know how many points it takes to get fired. And so for all they know, they could be one transgression away from losing this important piece of their livelihood. Yeah. Um, and so they're terrified to speak out about anything because they don't know what it's going to take to, um, to earn a point or to get a point off. And they could get a point for something, as I said, as simple as slipping and falling or being a couple minutes late to work. And we've heard of workers having to go an entire year with perfect behavior um, without any transgressions just to have one point removed from their record. And so the companies sort of keep these point systems very mysterious um, to workers as a way to just keep them quiet. Um, and it's really, uh, it's really terrible.
Uh, yeah. Um, I think we're going to take a short break from all this bad news. <laughs> Oliver, you're amazing, I got to say, boy. Um, and we'll be right back uh, with Oliver Gottfried from Oxfam America uh, talking more about conditions within po- the poultry industry. Thanks for listening, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hi, this is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. This is my first season as a host, but at the Brooklyn Kitchen, we've been supporting Heritage Radio for many years, and I really believe in what Heritage does. It is a fantastic network that really highlights everything that is going on in food in America, from restaurant openings to farms uh, to my show, where I feature interesting people with interesting stories related to food. But Heritage is a not-for-profit. We don't make any money. Uh, Most of the hosts do this because we love to do it, and we really do need your help as listeners. We'd love to have you listen, whether you can give any money or not. The website will still be up. You can still stream your favorite shows. But if you do like the programs here on Heritage Radio, we really would encourage you to go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org, click on the beating heart in the upper right-hand corner, and give whatever you can if... You drink coffee every afternoon while you listen to shows on Heritage, then maybe you can give us the cost of a cup of coffee once in a while. If you want to become a larger member, there's all kinds of great things you get if you become a member of the station and a larger supporter. So please join me, join the Brooklyn Kitchen, join our other great sponsors, and become a member. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking about the poultry industry today with Oliver Gottfried, the Senior Advocacy and Collaborations Advisor at Oxfam America. Um, Oxfam has just uh, published a really uh, e- extraordinary uh, report on the poultry industry and labor issues within that. Um, it's called Lives on the Line. You can go to their website and um, download a copy of the report or watch the um, the uh, multimedia um project that they put together to illustrate uh, what's going on in the poultry industry vis-a-vis their workers. Um, Oliver, let's, um, let's, let's move to what the recommendations were that your report made to improving the industry. Like, what, what can yeah. they do? It seemed to me like, you know, yes, these fixes would take some money, but they're certainly doable. So what did you guys recommend? Yeah, so we spent a lot of time talking to workers about what are the changes inside these plants that, uh, you know, would make this job, you know, give you the respect and, and dignity that you deserve and, and to make sure that you're compensated fairly and, and aren't being, you know, injured permanently by this. And so, uh, you know, our report, and, and this is detailed on the website as well, has a number of different recommendations, about three dozen total different recommendations. But mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, uh, you know, I'll, I'll boil them down to a few. And we looked at sort of three main categories. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in, in uh, the area of, of wages and compensation, 
we believe these companies should be paying workers a living wage. Um, and, you know, living wage is dependent on uh, where these communities, uh, where these plants are located and what the communities are and what the standard of living is in those uh, communities. That's why we, uh, you know, don't uh, advocate for a specific dollar amount, a living wage that allows them to support their work full time, support their family, and not rely on government assistance while still having uh, extra income available to be able to um, to be able to build savings. Uh, to provide health insurance, and for the most part, um, these companies do provide health insurance, but workers have to pay for it, and that right. requires a significant amount of their paychecks uh, to be able to uh, to pay for that, and to um, end the use of debit cards and to provide workers for uh, with pay stubs, and to end this practice of not paying workers for the time spent taking off and. Uh, and on their gear, donning and doffing, which you referred to earlier. Uh, on the health and safety front, we uh, we asked for basically for the uh, w- these companies to understand the speed at which these workers work. We call it work speed, um, and to do and to have that speed be at a uh, at a at a rate that does not cause these workers to be injured. So that could involve slowing down their processing lines, but it could involve a number of other very specific uh, changes that they could make that are um, that would not affect the sort of rate of production. If they hire more workers, that means you could have uh, each worker processing fewer chickens that go along mm-hmm. uh, the line in front of them. Um, more workers would also mean that you could have what are called floaters so that could stand in for a worker if they need to take a break, if they need to stretch, if they need to go use the restroom. Uh, and uh, just proper equipment. And one of the problems that we've found is that, for example, when you stand there making 20,000 different knife cuts a day, the knife gets really dull. And the duller that the knife is, the more force is required to cut. Uh, to cut the pieces of chicken, that greater force leads to greater injury. Sure. Um, so lots of different changes like that would significantly uh, lessen the uh, health and safety risks for these workers. Uh, but on top of that, um, we want these companies to provide the workers with proper medical care when they are injured um, and making sure that when a worker is injured, these companies are analyzing what caused that injury and making changes uh, to be able to uh, alleviate that in the future. And making sure that these uh, workers have proper training. Uh, you know, there are these workers... Sometimes do receive health and safety training um, or food safety training um, as part of the job, but they can sometimes just get it one time when they start. It can be in a language that they don't understand if mm-hmm. it's only provided in English or only English and Spanish, and these workers um, speak other languages. So we think that they should get constant health and safety training to be able to um, always learn and be learning continuously about how to do their jobs better. Uh, and then in the last category, you know, what, what we are seeing basically is that we believe that these workers lack a voice or any sense of empowerment on the job. They're unable to speak out about conditions, and they tell us we, we want to be able to have input into the, uh, into the way that we do our jobs and the way that these, um, this chicken production is done. We want the companies to listen to us. And so we, we are asking the companies, especially in those companies where, that have plants that are not uh, represented by unions, where this, uh, where these workers lack this sort of voice, is a system where these workers are consulted and given real meaningful input over how their jobs are done and respected and valued for the work that they do, so that they're able to speak out if there's a food safety problem. I and mean, we've heard something as simple as if a chicken falls on the floor, workers are terrified to speak out about it, and so it's just picked up and put right back on the processing mm-hmm. line, which obviously has any number of food safety uh, concerns involved with it. But because workers are terrified about speaking out about anything, they don't say that. But in a, in a workplace where they are are respected and valued and where their input is, is welcomed, those sorts of things would be alleviated and workers would be able to uh, be able to speak out more about what's going on. So there's, there are major food safety issues here. I mean, the line speed alone, um, by the way, I wanted to ask you one thing. How much does hemp, which is that sort of, um, you know, food safety inspection services, uh, quote unquote, newer model, um, how much has that affected poultry workers? Because I know that in some cases that was, that has been implemented in poultry. Um, I know there are only 
a few pork processing plants that are still using it. And it has clearly been proven in the pork industry to be um, a much more dangerous way of inspecting chickens, despite the protestations of the USDA and the FSIS. To the contrary, um, has hemp had a big impact on line speed in poultry? Um, it, it- yeah, so you know, line speeds the maximum speed at which um, uh, poultry companies are able to run their what are called their evisceration line speed, um, which is where the uh, where the chickens are initially killed and then um, and then prepped for um, their processing by hand. Mm-hmm. That is set by uh, USDA, and they that is set uh, mainly with food safety concerns in mind. It does not take worker safety into account, and right. those maximum line speeds that countries can that companies can run their speeds at have. Uh, doubled just in the last uh, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And while that does not directly impact the speed at which workers do their job, the faster the companies can run the evisceration line speed um, in order to keep up with their production demands, they, uh, they then are uh, needed sometimes to run their production and processing line speeds uh, further in the production process much faster. So we have seen as the uh, maximum line speeds have increased for the USDA that that does have an impact on the workers as the process goes on. And I will say that um, you know this new inspection system that USDA implemented last year does have significant food safety concerns. This is not Oxfam's area of expertise, but we have worked with a number of food safety groups. And what that really entailed was removing federal food inspectors from the processing line right. and um, replacing them with company inspectors, which obviously has uh, you know the potential for significant food safety concerns. <laughs> yes, it certainly does. Um, so when you when you made these recommendations, um, let's look for a second. I, w- I just want to talk about how did you how did you get your information? How many people did you interview? Um, and was industry at all compliant with you um, vis-a-vis giving information? Um, how did you how did you get all this information compiled? Because they tend to be pretty opaque uh, in exactly. the meatpacking industry. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of our methodology, we combine a number of different things. There have been some other uh, very good reports on the poultry industry uh, done by a number of other organizations, um, as well as academic researchers, news organizations. And so we compiled a bibliography of over 200 sources that, uh, and did a comprehensive review of all of those. Um, some of them as old as 20 or 30 years, but some of them yeah. as recent as, you know, within the last year or two. Um, and then we combined that with interviews with several dozen current and former poultry workers, as well as um, academics, medical experts, legal experts, um, uh, federal government uh, staff, uh, as a way to get sort of a 360 view of, of what's going on in this industry. Um, and we did reach out to the companies as well. And, you know, it's certainly our practice. We, we try to be open and honest in our dealings with, uh, with corporations as part of Oxfam's uh, 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 policy. Right. And so, you know, in the process of our research, we did reach out to each of the four companies um, that we name as the targets of our report and our campaign, as well as any other company that's not mentioned in here at any point, and said, we're putting together this report. Um, you know, we want to hear your side of the story. We want to hear, um, you know, so we hear more about your operations because, as you said, exactly, there's a lack of transparency overall from this industry in terms of their sure. uh, practices. Um, you know, a few, uh, you know, uh, both Tyson and uh, Purdue do have very good written policies that they state publicly um, as part of their um, corporate uh, social responsibility reports and also on their website about uh, treatment of workers. Yeah, uh, we believe for them that the uh, the gap often have, uh, is between both what their policy is and how the implementation of that policy. But for most of the other poultry companies, they have no publicly stated policies when it comes to the issues that we're talking about and how they treat their workers. And so we really, one of the big, along with the specific recommendations that I laid out, one of the big things we are really pushing the industry is more, more transparency. Yeah. We have official... Sure. 
um, OSHA statistics on injuries, which uh, are only from a, a very small review of a small number of poultry plants that they do every year in order to compile those statistics. Um, and the companies really have the information that we would need to be able to judge them accurately on how they're treating their workers. And for the most part, that information is, uh, is not publicly available. And so, right. um, you know, we have had responses from a few of the companies. And if you uh, visit the Oxfam website, um, the multimedia website that you were referring to, we do have responses from a few of the companies. Um, but we're really hoping that, um, you know, that um, response to this report and response from consumers pushes more of these companies to meet with us. We are very eager to talk about solutions to these companies um, and, the, and the problems that we identified um, so that we can talk about solutions as a way for them to treat their workers better. Absolutely. I mean, with the kind of money these guys are raking in, it's just... <laughs> You know, it's really, it's beyond belief. Now, um, there was, I was going to say the industry responses indicate that they feel they're doing what the, what you guys, um, have recommended, um, or mm-hmm. even they exceed those recommendations. But clearly, as you said, there's a big gap between, um, having those recommendations or having those, pro- those processes and protocols on paper and what is actually happening within the plants. And I'm wondering, um, even if they, you know, so when they say that they're doing this, that they have, you know, adequate, health and safety regulations, that they have medical insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, even if they say they're doing that, uh, is there any way that this could ever be policed in any meaningful way? I mean, why isn't OSHA more powerful? Why isn't the USDA more powerful in uh, regulating some of these practices? I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah, so there's a few things that are at play here. Uh, you're right. Some of these companies have said this, we do do this. We, mm-hmm. you know, implement many or all of these recommendations. Um, but as I said, due to that lack of transparency, we have very little way for many of these companies in accurately assessing whether that's true or not. Right. Sure, they have policies, but we see a real gap in, um, in implementation of many of those policies. Yeah. Um, and there are third-party entities that do exist. They operate uh, quite robustly in several other uh, industries, uh, both in the U.S. and around the world, that do third-party independent audits uh, of companies on a regular basis and publicize those results. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've seen, it, uh, we've seen it as a way of you know, holding these companies accountable to what they say that their uh, policies are. And so we have been encouraging companies to uh, engage in that sort of uh, audit and, uh, and review process and publicize mm-hmm. where they're doing well uh, and where they're uh, not doing as well and what they plan to, to do to address that. And specifically on the federal government side, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, OSHA obviously is the uh, government entity who's been tasked with overseeing health and safety and uh, and health and safety conditions in poultry plants and the Department of Labor overall, the Wage and Hour Division looks at issues of compensation and wage theft. And right. Out. Um, and uh, the problem is, is that for the most part, these uh, these agencies and the government are severely underfunded. Um, and so, you know, as as an example, um, you know, the OSHA as itself has only enough personnel to inspect just one percent of all workplaces in the U.S. each year. Not one percent of uh, poultry. Company, uh, facilities, 1% of all workplaces. Jesus. And so at their current staffing levels, it would take them over 100 years to go and visit every single <laughs> uh, workplace in the United States and make sure that, the, that it was uh, safe and, and healthy for their workers. Yeah. So what that creates is that OSHA does do, the, do inspections if, they're, if they hear about a problem, and sometimes they'll do inspections on their own, and they do uncover these sorts of problems, but they're simply underfunded and understaffed uh, to be able to do it in a comprehensive way that would solve those problems for uh, and lead to solutions. 
solutions for all of these workers. Yeah. Uh, and so that's really um, the the problem that we're uh, that we're finding out. And, and and you know, frankly, there needs to you know we really hope and we do have recommendations in the federal uh, there for the federal government in our report um, about making sure that OSHA does have the resources that it needs to be able to do um, the serious sort of oversight and enforcement uh, of this industry that we believe is deserved to be able to uncover these. Um, but absent that sort of increased funding and that sort of increased oversight, um, you know, that's why we are going to the companies directly, because they have the, the ability and certainly the, the resources certainly to be able to make these changes for their workers directly. Yeah, no question about that. Um, uh, there, there, I, I have so many other questions, but I want to I just want to touch for a second on a couple of uh, sort of macro issues that that are um, germane to this. And, and, and the first one being, let's talk about immigration reform. Um, because clearly, a lot of the people who are working in these meatpacking plants across the board, no matter which, you know, livestock uh, category you want to talk about, um, they are, are almost all immigrant workers, and many of them are undocumented workers. So how, mm-hmm. how much would immigration reform uh, make an impact on how these conditions uh, would be allowed to prevail, um, or what kind of changes would be, um, you know, happen if immigration reform were passed? What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, so as you said, and we haven't talked about this yet, it's sort of who these workers are. Um, But as I said, there's a quarter of a million workers who do this uh, poultry processing. Um, We do not have, uh, you know, completely specific demographic data on who these workers are. The way that the government counts counts it is they put poultry and beef and pork processing workers together in one category. Um, But we do know that a significant number of the workforce is people of color, almost entirely people of color, with a significant number of immigrants, both uh, those here legally and those here without documentation. Um, and and the, the companies will often use that uh, to their advantage. Obviously, you know, a worker who is here without documentation is, would be much less likely to speak out um, for fear of the companies using their um, their undocumented status to be able to discriminate against them. And we've heard of workers being threatened with deportation um, if they speak out. So if the kind of comprehensive immigration reform that passed the Senate uh, recently was put into place, it would really be, uh, with a path to citizenship, these workers would, it would be one less barrier to them uh, in terms of being able to report uh, problems if the companies weren't able to use threats of deportation or, or raids by the immigration right. uh, authorities to be able to uh, keep these workers silent. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, finally, because we unfortunately have to go, um, but, um, and I know this is really basically another entire discussion for another totally different show, but but just uh, to quickly uh, pinpoint some of of the major events that are going on in the world of food that I think a lot of people are unaware of, and that are the are the those are the two huge trade deals that we are currently negotiating and considering. One being uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership (TPP) or the TTIP, which is the Trans uh, Transatlantic Trade and Industry. Um, uh, partnership, um, which is with Western 28 countries in Western Europe. Um, what kinds of impacts do you see those trade negotiations or those trade deals, if they pass, um, having on uh, uh, workers in within the meatpacking industry? Because obviously a lot of the barriers to trade are going to go away, and we're, we're going to see a lot of shifting around in terms of how mm-hmm. uh, things get processed. What do you think will happen there? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the way that the uh, regulations currently exist is the U.S. doesn't import uh, poultry from any other country. Right. Uh, all of the chicken that you buy or eat in this country is, is, pro- is grown and processed here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my understanding is that, the, the, you know, these new trade deals don't change that. What, what they would change is 
as I said, consumption of chicken in the U.S. does continue to rise, but it, it isn't rising at the same enormous rate that it was, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so the poultry, the poultry companies know that they're going to, they are interested in finding new markets to be able to sell their product, to be able to keep increasing their profits. And internationally, that is one of the big areas that they have. About 20% of all chicken that's grown and processed in this country is now exported to other countries. That's and right. we often export the pieces of the chicken that we don't necessarily eat ourselves. Americans eat less dark meat. People in Russia and, and, um, and others in the Eastern Hemisphere really do uh, enjoy dark meat more than we do. So those pieces of chicken feed you know, other parts of the chicken. And so the companies do really see international exports of chicken as one of their growth areas. And so mm-hmm. more countries that we have agreements with that we're able to sell our profits in, uh, uh, it means that more production for these poultry companies, right. more production means more stress on workers. Uh, and so anything that sort of allows these companies to create and, and sell more product does roll down to these workers on the line in terms of greater de- uh, production demand. On That's right. uh, so it's something we're, we're watching keenly. Very good. Okay, so thank you, uh, Oliver Gottfried. Thank you so much for joining me. Oliver is from Oxfam. I urge people to go to the Oxfam America website. Um, check out this report, Lives on the Line. Check out their multimedia presentation and think about where you're buying your chicken the next time. Um, and in the meantime, let's remember that this is uh, part of our fundraising drive for the fall for Heritage Radio Network. Um, like I said at the top of the show, you're not going to hear this on mainstream media um, very likely. I think it would be um, really quite unusual to get 45 solid minutes of real in-depth discussion about the poultry industry and the egregious uh, labor relations that exist or the labor conditions that exist within our meatpacking industry as a whole and within uh, the poultry industry in uh, particular. So um, thanks a lot for joining me today, Oliver. Thanks to my sponsor, Kane Winery, uh, to my engineer, Jack Inslee, and uh, remember to go to the website and hit that heart, that beating heart, um, so you can help me support my radio habit because God knows I just couldn't live without doing this every week. Uh, Thanks a lot for listening. Have a happy Thanksgiving, folks. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.